Tennessee Court Talk is a podcast presented by the Tennessee Supreme Court, Administrative Office of the Courts. The aim of the podcast is to improve the administration of justice in state courts through education and understanding. The target audience varies and is announced in the beginning of each episode. Welcome to Tennessee Court Talk. I'm your host, Barbara Peck. Today's podcast is different from what we normally do. Recently, we attended an event at Lipscomb University with the three former and the three current female justices of the Tennessee Supreme Court. The conversation was enlightening and lively, and it stands for itself. Thank you to Lipscomb University and Professor Randy Spivey for organizing this amazing event and for allowing us to record it. The recording featured in this podcast is from the evening panel during the Fred D. Gray dinner and features the justices discussing mentors, being the one and only woman, what the justices do in their downtime, and more. In this discussion, you will hear from former Justice Judge Martha Sissy Craig Daughtry, who is currently a senior judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, former Justice Penny White, who is now a professor at the University of Tennessee College of Law, former Justice Janice Holder, who practices in Memphis, and the court's three current female justices, Justice Connie Clark, Justice Sharon Lee, and Justice Holly Kirby. This panel is moderated by Joycelyn Stevenson, the Executive Director of the Tennessee Bar Association. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you all for being here and and welcome. I, to say that I'm honored to be sitting here uh, tonight is an understatement with this esteemed panel. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. I know people here want to hear from you. Uh, we talked earlier, and I told them I will ask you questions. You do not have to answer if you don't want to. If you have a better question, feel free to throw it out there. If you say it's a dumb question, that's fine too. And they all agreed to tell me that if, uh, if it comes up. But if uh, there's a question that you think is a better question, I'm, sh- I'm sure that you will let us know. Um, we had the pleasure of sitting with uh, Jayla, one of the Freddie scholars at our table. And she was very kind to talk about, always wanted to be a lawyer, but really wanted to be a judge. And so I thought, what a great place to start with you, with all of you wonderful um, women of the court this, this, this evening. So one of the outcomes of this program, I think Jayla is a testament to that, is hopefully that we can inspire women and others uh, to excel and want to be leaders in their communities. Um, there are likely some women and men out there who aren't familiar with some of the pioneers of the law and of women in the profession around the state. And so I'd like for you all to talk a little bit about who some of those folks are, who should we know that some people might not know, and also if any of those people were your mentors or inspired you, I think that would be important to know as well. And I know Justice Kirby, you in particular had a particular person in mind that you wanted to mention, so we'll start with you. The person I wanted to talk about in particular is Judge Julia Gibbons in Memphis. Uh, No discussion of women pioneers in Tennessee is complete without her. In 1981, and remember, Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1981 to give you a little frame of reference. In 1981, uh, then Governor Lamar Alexander appointed her as the first female judge uh, appointed to a court of record in Tennessee. She was only 30 years old at that time. She went on to run an election with her infant daughter on her hip as she was campaigning and won election in Shelby County as trial judge. In 1983, President Reagan appointed her to the federal district court, making her the first female federal judge in the state of Tennessee. She was at that time the youngest 
person ever appointed to the federal bench. Even now, she's the second youngest person ever appointed to the federal bench. But that's not all. The Chief Justice of the US Supreme Court noticed how capable she was and began appointing her to positions of leadership. In 2002, after 20 years on the trial bench, she was appointed to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Shortly after that, the Chief Justice appointed her as the chair of the budget committee of the entire federal judiciary. Think about that for just a moment. It's a, it's a budget of several million dollars. As the chair of the budget committee, she presented the federal budget for the federal judiciary to Congress through several administrations, several changes of parties over a period of 12 years. She is significant to me. Uh, she's significant to a number of men and women who she has mentored. She's humble, she's brilliant, uh, she has pitch-perfect judicial temperament as uh, Judge Daughtry sits with her <coughs> on, the, on the Sixth Circuit. Justice Page was served as her law clerk. A number of people in this room can see. She, uh, I wanted to make sure that she was included because uh, she is a person of not only historic significance in Tennessee, but of national prominence. And I wanted to make sure you know about her. Thanks. I, I would love to say that if it weren't for Sissy Daughtry, um, none of us would be sitting here and um, as the, as the, as the least, least long, longest serving member of the court, I do, um, Judge, Judge Daughtry was the judge when there were nine of us, nine women in the entire state. And another one of those women, Marietta Shipley, is in is in the audience, and I can remember going to judicial conference, and and if you could find Sissy, uh, you knew you could get through four days at a state park <laughs> because she was going to be there to to hold you up, and and uh, I just want to say it publicly that every everything after the first judgeship that I had, I owe to you. So thank you so very very much. Thank you. And I want to join that. Uh, because I came in as judge number six, appointed just before a regular election, and Sissy was the first person to call me and say, judicial conference is going to be in just two or three weeks, um, and I would love it if you would be my roommate. I had no idea going in that, first of all, Sissy as an appellate judge probably didn't, wasn't required to have a roommate. She was just welcoming me, uh, but there wouldn't have been many other choices for roommates. <laughs> since there were only four other women besides the two of us um, there. But she just, she, she was somebody I had known of but not known well until I actually became a trial judge. And so I just second what Penny said. She has uh, pulled people along and, and pushed us along and dragged us along if we <laughs> needed to be dragged. Um, and uh, there are a lot of people um, that she has mentored in ways uh, overt and, um, and behind the scenes and in many different ways. And I also have a Judge Daughtry story. <laughs> You're gonna go next? I get, I get to go next, seniority. Seniority, that's right. <laughs> I forget about seniority. Uh, I was in the wave in 1990 when some women got elected 
and we added to the women uh, who were on the bench in Tennessee. And I, I really have to echo uh, what Connie said about Judge Daughtry because she really, she brought us all along, uh, whether we wanted to be coddled or not, she brought us all along. And I wasn't her roommate, but Penny was my roommate. Mm -hmm. So we got to be roommates together at the Judicial Conference, but without Judge Daughtry, um, we wouldn't be here. So I thought I was the only one with a Judge Daughtry story, <laughs> and as it turned out, they preempted my remarks. But um, in 1990, when um, she was running for the Supreme Court, at that time, the court, the, I guess the Democrat nominees got together, got a van, and went all over the state. So I lived and practiced in Monroe County, <clears throat> and in 1990, I was running for General Sessions judge. And um, I was the only woman practicing in the county, so I never saw any other women lawyers or judges. Uh, and my mom was getting together this uh, greeting or welcome party for the Supreme Court when they came to town or the nominees. And she called and said, we really need you at the courthouse. The Supreme Court's coming. We're not going to stay long, but we need you there. And I said, Mom, I really don't want to meet them. I, I'll, ne I'll never see them again. What's the point of meeting <laughs> these five people that have no part in my life? <laughs> so, but my mom's like, we're afraid nobody's going to show up. You've got to be there. So I go. <laughs> Here they get off the bus and shake hands, and I meet Judge Daughtry, and I think, well, that's the end of that. I'll never see any other Supreme Court justices again. So about, so the election comes and goes, and she wins. I lose. And um, I, about two weeks later, I get this letter in the mail from Justice Martha Craig Daughtry, and I was really afraid to open it because, kind of like the IRS, a Supreme Court justice doesn't write you unless you're in trouble. And I'm thinking, what have I done? And what I had done, I didn't think anybody knew about. So, you know, what, what, what is this all about? I really racked my brain. Uh, so I opened it, and it was a letter from uh, Judge Daughtry saying, uh, so nice to meet you at the Monroe County Courthouse. And I, I see you didn't win your election, but, you know, you should continue to try. And it was just a very uplifting letter. And I was just so surprised that she remembered me after all those counties they went to, that she would remember me and that she would check to see how this little General Sessions Court race went in Monroe County. Um, so when I got appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, she was the first call I made to see if she would speak at my investiture because I thought things had really come full circle. Now, and I told that story at my investiture, and, and she, of course, didn't remember it because she's written a lot of letters like that, encouraging people. <laughs> So I, I knew I was going to surprise her with this story, uh, but that, that tells you a whole lot about her, that she could make that big a difference in somebody's life. Who At that point, I was feeling like a pretty big loser, losing the election, and then to get that kind of letter really, really mattered. So thank you. So I have a Sissy Daughtry story, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it has to do with Julia Gibbons. Um, the years that the Judicial Conference was at, Hen not Henry Horton, um, Fall Creek Falls, uh, in order to get one of the cabins, there was a three-judge rule. I mean, we tried to get a cabin um, and never were able to do it. And so Julia gets appointed, and then Muriel Robinson gets elected, and I stormed up to the executive secretary's office, and I said, we get a cabin. <laughs> There are three of us in this whole judicial conference, and we get a cabin. <laughs> and we did.
Well, all of that much-deserved praise um, for, uh, particularly for you, Judge Daughtry, leads me to my next question. And we are very fortunate in the state of Tennessee to have a Supreme Court that's majority women. And to give a round of applause for that, that's really awesome. <laughs> and as you saw from the, the scrolling screen um, before dinner ended, there are a lot of firsts in this room and on this stage. And many of you were the first or the second or the only woman for a period of time in different positions that you've held. So I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that. What was it like to be the first and sometimes only? And what advice would you give to particularly women in the audience who still in 2020 might be the first and the only? And Judge Daughtry, I think starting with you is a natural place to start. Well, um, this takes me back to 1975 uh, when I first got the appointment to the Court of Criminal Appeals. And I, I think the main thing, uh, well, there was a mentor on that court, Judge Bill Russell, who uh, took me right under his wing and uh, protected me to a great extent from, from uh, what might otherwise have been unpleasant uh, conversations and so forth. But uh, there were, I mean, there was generally shock on the court when I came on. There were nine people on the court, nine, eight white men and me. And uh, as I said this afternoon to the students, there were a couple of those um, judges who really thought they were important people. And all of a sudden, somebody was suggesting that a 33-year-old girl could do the job that they thought was so important. So there was some, um, there was some uh, shock uh, and a little pushback. Um, and it wasn't much fun, and it was a long time before I got on a court. It was another 15 years before I ended up on a court where there was another woman. And I think, really, uh, we should hear from the people on the Supreme Court. I mean, when Janice went on the court, she was by herself for a while. A long time. And, um, and really appreciated the fact that there was a number two coming in behind her. I will say this, the first state Supreme Court in the country that had a majority of women on it was Minnesota. And that's a, that's a seven-member court, and four of the judges, uh, justices, were women. And I don't know if you remember this, Margaret, but the women lawyers in Nashville were threatening to rent a bus and drive up to St. Paul, go in the back into the courtroom, sit and watch a court that looked like real life, because they also had um, an African-American male judge on that court, and then file out quietly and get on the bus and, and drive back to Nashville. I, I never quite raised enough interest to pay for the bus, but I was all for it. Justice Holder, you want to talk a little bit about sure. that? I was appointed to the court in 1996, and I was the only woman on the court until 2005 when Justice Clark was appointed. And it, it's really difficult to explain what being the only woman on the Supreme Court is like. Only Justice Daughtry would, would, know, would have known some of what you go through as being the only woman. And I'll say it nicely by saying yeah. that as the only woman yeah. on the Supreme Court, you were relatively irrelevant. And, and sometimes you would speak and you weren't heard. 
It was a very interesting experience. Um, no one really thought about how your life went or whether you had a way to get from point A to point B or whether you needed some help with anything. So when Connie got on the court in 2005, I think she asked me something like, how, when, are you going to, when are you going to Nashville? Or how are you getting from here to there? And I almost fell over because <laughs> nobody had ever shown any interest in how I got from point A to point B or whether there was any coordination that could take place between two people to do the same thing. <laughs> so it was, it was a sea change. Just having Connie there just made my life completely different from that point on. When I went on the Court of Appeals, um, I was 38, and uh, uh, the next youngest, all the other judges were men, of course, and the next youngest was maybe 10 years older than me and worked in another part of the state. So it was not only a gender difference, but a generational difference. All the judges mm -hmm. I worked for were uh, men of a different generation I was most of the time a single mother with two school-aged children. Their children were grown and their wives had uh, maybe part-time jobs, but they took care of everything for them. So it was a completely different situation between me and them. Um, and what I, if you want to know advice, Joycelyn, what I found for me was uh, that they were trying to. They didn't know how to approach it. They didn't know what my life was like. And uh, over time, I've, I cut them some slack consistently in not being able to envision my life as a single mother trying to get my kids to school before I drive uh, an hour and a half to court. Um, and over time, we became great friends. We developed mutual respect after them really not knowing what to make of me. I was the age of their daughters and sons. Um, uh, they, um, I took it in stride. They tried to take it in stride. And we ended up having a lot of mutual respect and uh, great friendship. I want to jump into this conversation, but I think the better segue is to go back to Justice White because she was young, uh, different generation as well, and she served as the only woman for that period of time. So, um, Penny, what would you say about that? Well, thank you. Um, I did serve as the only um, <coughs> member of the Supreme Court who happened to be female for a shorter period than Justice Holder, but nonetheless served by myself. Um, and, but mostly I'm second at everything, right? Thanks to Sissy, I was second, uh, the second woman on the Court of Criminal Appeals. And so when I was there, Sissy was on the Supreme Court, so there were two of us. And, and then when I went to the Supreme Court and she went to the Sixth Circuit, by that time we had Justice Lee and Justice Kirby and Justice, uh, eventually Judge Ogle um, on Court of Criminal Appeals. But, but, but a couple of points, um, I was 34 years old when I became an appellate judge. 
uh, on the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, I lived, as like I like to say, uh, closer to Canada than to Memphis uh, in the nooks and crannies of Upper East Tennessee. I held, I was the first, I was first uh, female circuit court judge in the first judicial district. So that's Mountain City, very, very rural, very, very conservative Mountain City, or one Lisbethan, Johnson City. So I was first at that. And uh, I, I'm a little disappointed that Randy didn't put what I asked him to put on the slide because I am an only. And uh, he just he just wouldn't put it up there. So as I told the students today, uh, and at this point, it is what it is. I'm the only uh, appellate judge in the state of Tennessee to lose to nobody and not and not be returned to office. So uh, I do I do have that distinction. My experience, I think. Uh, so 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 I keep referring to her as sissy. It seems odd to call her Judge Daughtry, but she's she's just my friend. And she, she had warned me, I think, or prepared me. But, you know, frankly, uh, maybe it's because I was 22 or four years younger than Frank Drawoda, who was the closest in age to me. But I ended up having uh, a wonderful relationship with Justice Drawoda, um, my first chief, Chief Justice Anderson. Um, Chief Justice Birch, who I dearly, dearly adored and loved, and Justice Reed, who I'm still friends with to this day. And, and, and this is, a, some of the women in the audience won't appreciate this, but one of the things that I did was to create a necktie contest. <laughs> and so when I would go into the, into the deliberation room, I was always traveling all the way from Tri-Cities down to Nashville had the longest trip of anyone to get there. And I will tell you that the most interesting experience back in the day when we had judicial plates and I had J5 was uh, when the nice Tennessee state trooper pulled me over and said, and I quote, honey, are you in a hurry to get home and see the judge? And I said, no, honey, I am the judge. <laughs> but. In any event, I would just go into the room, and, and I'll have to say, Al Birch was the only member of the court who knew how to buy or wear a tie. So I would just tell Drewoda and Anderson and, and Reed they needed, to, they needed to take some lessons from Justice Birch about neckwear, and we became friends. So, um, so that, was a, that was just a very what special the, part of the, my life. What the cop said to me is, are you married to a judge? And I said, no, but my husband is. Oh, good. <laughs> Okay, so Joyce Lynn. So, <laughs> this is a great segue to the. Did you? I'm sorry, Justice I, Clark. <laughs> I still want the rest of us to jump back in yes. because it is different when you come in as the second member of the Supreme Court. Um, I've never been on a court that had fewer than two women, and so didn't ever feel those first dynamics, at least among my colleagues. Um, there are still differences, and there were still conversations about neckties and other things. Uh, and maybe just Justice Elder had broken them in well, but I thought that they tried really hard uh, to, to welcome me and to, um, when there are only five members of a court, and in Tennessee we only have five, it creates a whole new group personality when a single person comes in. And we have to work as a group and sometimes move as a group. 
Um, and so everybody has to give and take a little bit. It's kind of like brothers and sisters. You don't get to choose them, but once you've got them, you're all part of the family. Um, and I think it got easier probably as there were more of us, and I don't know what Justice Lee and Justice Kirby would say. I think no. Diane Wood said, it's like being married in a situation where you can't get a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I've never served, uh, my entire time on the Supreme Court has been with majority of women, so that's very unique. And I suspect Tennessee has one of the longest records of having majority of women on the court than any other state. I, when I was appointed to the Court of Appeals, I was the only woman in the, or the first woman and the only woman to serve on the Eastern section. And um, I, I, it was very welcoming. Um, one time we were here in a case and Judge Franks, who's, it was a case about a tanning bed. A lady fell getting out of the tanning bed and sued. Judge Franks had never seen a tanning bed, I'm pretty certain. And he kept saying, now she fell, what, in a bed? And he, he just didn't get the notion of a tanning bed. So I just sort of interrupted and said, counsel, I know what you're talking about. I'll explain it. I'll explain tanning beds to Judge Franks. Go ahead with your argument. So he wrote me this little note that said, this is why we needed you on this court. <laughs> and I'm thinking, eh? I'm not sure about that, but uh, I do have this case nailed, so yeah, I, I do know about tanning beds. Well, one of the questions that I was going to ask is if you feel or felt that there are differences um, in the experiences of men who are attorneys, judges, justices, than women, and if you had any war stories or personal stories related to this that could, funny or not funny, that you could shed light on for our audience. Any, I know we had some discussions in back, but I won't bring up anything in particular. I'll let you decide what you want to talk about. How many people in the room remember David Rutherford? Okay, a few hands. He, he was one of the old-time uh, lawyers here in Nashville. By old-time, I mean he was at his peak about 50 years ago. And he showed up in the Court of Criminal Appeals to argue a case, and... I was having a conversation with him and I asked him a question and he looked at me. I mean, I'd known David for years. He looked at me and he said, honey, I'm so glad you asked me that question. <laughs> and then he answered the question and I said nothing, but he was on his way out when I said, Mr. Rutherford, would you come back to the podium for just a minute? I said, I know you didn't mean any disrespect at all but you should know that you called one of the judges up here, honey. And while I'm not going to hold it against you, if you did that to say Joe Duncan over here, he <laughs> might not think it was excusable as I do. <coughs> and whereupon Mr. Rutherford uh, assured me that he had meant no disrespect to the court. Of course. Anyone else? Well, since the chief is here, um, <laughs> Chief Justice Bivens and I are both from Kingsport. And um, the first time I appeared in General Sessions Court in Kingsport, the Sessions judge refused to allow me to speak until I produced my law license. <laughs> I said, I don't really carry it around, judge. <laughs> so I, let me share a story. I was speaking um, to a group of third graders one day and, and uh, told them about what it's like to be a judge. And, and their question, then they get to ask questions and they, you know, it's like, do you know Judge Judy? That's the first question you always get, all this stuff. So finally I said, okay, we got this one little boy in the back just kept, you know, mm, 
trying to just really wanted to, and he looked really worried, really wanted to ask a question. I finally said, one more question. What's your question? He went, can, can boys be judges? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, and I wanted to say, you know, we tried that for a long time. <laughs> and it just did not work. Um, and actually, the, the funny part, I, I, I had, I guess, spoken that morning. We had court that afternoon or the next day, and I come in the roving room, and I'm telling a story. And just before I give my response to the little boy, Bill Koch said, wait a minute. You didn't kill all of his dreams, did you? Because he knew what I wanted to say. I said, no. I said, you know, boys can be judges. Girls can be judges. Everybody can be judges. So I kept, you know, this hope alive. But I had a great answer for him. But That's I love that we were to the point that these little boys are thinking, the area of the judiciary is closed off to them, which is, when I was his age, that's, of course, what I would have uh, thought girls are closed off. Justice Holder, what about you? Oh, I have so many stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll just tell you one of, my, one of my less colorful ones. Um, when I was the only uh, on the court, we had argument in Memphis and one of the, the real deans of the, of the Memphis Bar um, was addressing the court at the very beginning of his argument. And he started out by saying, gentlemen. And I, I couldn't decide whether I would say something or not, and I let it go. Um, that is the type of thing that we got for a long time. When I was on the circuit bench, uh, male judges, uh, male attorneys, would refer to me as his honor and would say things like, his honor will tell you that this and this, and his honor will do this and this. And the jurors would just look at these guys, like, you know, quizzically, not quite understanding why they were doing that. But when you are the only or when you are one of the few, it's hard for people to make that transition from all males for so many years to a few women sprinkled throughout it. We had a secretary in um, circuit court who couldn't make the transition and referred to all of us as males. So if somebody called for me, she would say, he's on the bench right now, <laughs> but as soon as he gets off the bench, I'll let him know you called. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a, it's nothing that's done in a way that is meant to insult you, and I never took it as an insult, but it's just so ingrained and has been so ingrained for so many years that it's hard for people to make the transition. Justice Clark, anything? Um, some stories have to stay in the back. Yes. <laughs> some stories can come to the front. Um, one that I think about, especially early in my career, is that when I became a trial judge, and I was the first um, female trial judge in my four-county judicial district, I live uh, in Williamson County, and also went to Hickman, Lewis, and Perry, but in Williamson County, there was already um, a General Sessions judge who was female, Jane Franks, uh, who is still active in the juvenile court today, even though she's retired as judge, and I should really shout out to her as a mentor, too, because she came along in a really early time. So what happened was people, lawyers were aware that a new judge 
had been appointed, but a lot of times when I would be introduced to somebody or I would walk up to say hello, they would say, oh, are you Judge Franks? Um, and she said she began to get more comments like that too. Um, and I, I think really, again, it's, it, I don't think any disrespect was intended, but people were still just not that familiar with running across or into um, a female judge. Justice Kirby? Um, when I came on the court, I was, I was young as well as a woman, and uh, a lot of the lawyers just couldn't get their head around it. Um, what they did not know was uh, they normally wouldn't say much to me. They would sometimes be a little startled and a little puzzled, like, did one of the law clerks go out on the bench? But... Um, what they did not know was that our law clerks on the appellate court would regularly sit in the audience. So when we left uh, the bench, the law clerks were still out there yeah. and they were listening mm -hmm. to what the lawyers said. And some of it was very unflattering, some of it was uh, very sexist, um, and they didn't realize that the law clerks were bringing those comments back back to me, so be aware of that, lawyers, <laughs> when you are making your arguments. Yeah, I had a law clerk who came to me after lunch and reported that the, law, that the clerk of court in Knoxville had said after we'd finished a very intensive Fourth Amendment search and seizure uh, case, and yes, I had asked a lot of questions, and, and what he said to the, in front of the law clerks was, isn't that just like a woman to ask all those damn questions? Uh, got straight back to me, and I decided that was over the line and went out and said what the report was and said to him, if I hear anything like that, any comment like that, again, uh, it may cost you your job. Um, so, yeah, it, it happened all the time, actually. We only found out about it once in a while. Well, my next question is, and this is for anyone, talk about the importance of organizations or associations like the Lawyers Association for Women, T-Law, other state and bar associations in the advancement of women in the law, particularly in this state. Anyone? They're very I'll, important. <laughs> very important. <laughs> well, we, uh, many of you uh, who are lawyers here tonight, well, remember the breakfast that we used to throw for the Supreme Court. And the idea was, we'll throw a little breakfast in a fairly small room, so it looks like there are a bunch of us there. The room will be <laughs> full. And um, it was from the, and it was done at the time of the admissions to the bar. And the Supreme Court back then came. They actually invited them to come, they would come. Mm -hmm. Like, they knew we were going to feed them, of course. And so uh, at some point, we had an outside speaker come in, uh, Joan Dempsey-Klein, who had founded the National Association of Women Judges in, in uh, 1979 out in California. And she came and spoke. And uh, I said something to her about, she said, are these, is this all the judges in the state? And I said, no, but it's most of the ones in the middle of the state. I said, how many judges are there in California? And she said, we have 124 judges. And I said, how in the world did you manage to get 124 judges? I mean, Tennessee at the time, remember we had the three in the 
cabin <laughs> and right. a few more, but that was about <laughs> it. And she said, well, the governor appointed him. And I said, why would he do that? And she said, the Women's Bar Association mm -hmm. uh, was on him all the time, pressing him to appoint women and putting candidates up. Mm -hmm. And that was the point at which I said to my fellow breakfast providers, we need to formalize this and get organized. And, and one of the things we can do is increase the number of women in the, in the uh, state. And so the next thing I knew, I was in charge of a program called So You Want to Be a Judge. And, uh, and it worked. Um, it really did. When I was practicing law, um, uh, I was um, the first female partner in my firm. What that meant was that as each situation came up, uh, uh, I, I was um, on the leading edge of it, including when I had my first child. The uh, lawyers had to figure out, okay, what's our policy going to be? Um, and so they looked to me, the pregnant woman, to come up with a policy. And I looked to uh, my sisters in the Women's Bar Association that was uh, uh, a young uh, Women's Bar Association in Shelby County. Uh, but that's where I went to. We didn't have the internet and all that at the time. Uh, and I wanted something where I could bring it to the partners in the firm and say, this is what they're doing over here. This is what they're doing over here. Um, so it was invaluable, not only for moral support, but for very practical support for the ones who are the leading edge, um, you need help. And that's where I went to get it. So your presence on this panel and the presence of so many, particularly women leaders in this room, shows that we've made a lot of progress in the profession with respect to women. Where are there still some gaps? Where, there's, where is there room for improvement? And with so many leaders in the community in this room, what can they do to help continue to, to help with that progress. Justice Clark, what do you think? Well, the gaps that we see and hear the most about are still in um, the private practice of law. Uh, we see women uh, that for a number of different reasons don't stay on the full partner track. There are still not as m many women partners as there are coming out of law school where virtually every law school class now is at 50% women. Uh, pay is a problem. Uh, there are still child care and other um, issues like that that are problems. Um, the more that firms have to focus on hours and, and um, uh, fees and things like that, uh, I think the more difficult it is. We also uh, may have 25% women in our uh, judiciary now across the board but there probably should be more. There certainly should be more, again, given the number of young women coming out. So I still think we look at what, are, what barriers are there uh, to practice and how can we improve those? How can we encourage more people to run for judicial office? Um, and overall, how can we encourage more people to vote and vote for the issues and for the persons? It is as important who the governor of Tennessee is as it is that some of us are willing to uh, vie for uh, a position on the judiciary because it is the governor uh, in between terms, if you're not just running at the end of a term, who's going to make a decision about who fills all those positions. 
And so I think there are a lot of things we have to look at, uh, at how we can improve that. And we're here tonight talking about women and their progress. I don't want to underestimate uh, the, the significant, if not more significant, barriers and problems that African Americans and persons of other ethnicities still face. That's, that's not our topic, but uh, that's equally important. And most organizations, uh, professional organizations that I know, are really focusing on all of those issues. Anyone else? Okay. Um, I have a question for our former uh, justices, and particularly um, Justice Holder and Justice White. Talk about life after the Supreme Court and about what you're doing now. Go ahead, Jen. Okay. As, Ju as Chief Justice Bivens said, all you have to do is see me smile and you know that I'm having a good time. <laughs> um, since I left the bench in 2014, I, I really didn't have a plan about what I wanted to do, but that's kind of normal for me anyway. So I just sort of left and decided that whatever happened was going to happen and I'd kind of be open to whatever came down the pike. So gradually I started building a mediation practice and then a little bit later an arbitration practice. So I'm using sort of my skill set as a trial judge and an appellate judge um, in a different way. And it works very well and I'm enjoying it very much. Um, and I travel a lot and I've, of course, those of you who know me know that I'm a martial artist and I've been a martial artist for 30 years. So I'm still teaching, and I'm still competing, and I'm still working uh, on the martial arts. I ballroom dance. <laughs> I tap dance. <laughs> so if it sounds like fun, and it puts a smile on my face when I think about it, that's what I do. So it's, a, it's an easy way of choosing what you do in life. And uh, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had. They've been extremely valuable. They've been wonderful opportunities and wonderful experiences, but now I'm just doing something a little different, and it's it works. Justice White? Talk about not having a plan. <laughs> I did not have a plan, nor did I have a clue for that matter. But, uh, no, I have um, finally um, landed in the most incredible job in the in – the, um, in my imagination, I'm a professor of law and have been now for, believe it or not, longest time I ever have done anything, 20 years at the University of Tennessee College of Law. Uh, I run an advocacy and dispute resolution center there. There are people in this room who I wrap my arms around tonight because they are uh, graduates from the College of Law and I, I, there's not a better day than seeing someone who's in the profession making a difference using perhaps some of the skills and maybe a little bit of the, the experiences that I shared with them. Uh, so, so I am very, very fortunate to, have, uh, to, to be where I am. Unlike Justice Holder, I don't tap dance or ballroom <laughs> dance. I wish I did. Um, I pretty much still work all the time. Um, but um, stay very involved with the judiciary. I'm a kind of a permanent member of the faculty of the National Judicial College. I, I love judges, and I believe that they can have a tremendous impact on the, on the direction of our country. And so to be able still to 
hang out with judges like here tonight and also at the judicial college where state court judges go to try to improve their skills is an, is an incredible honor that, um, that I spend a lot of my non-UT time at the judicial college or somewhere else teaching judges or, or lawyers. So that's what I do. You know, she, uh, she's the only member of the appellate courts, I think, in Tennessee who ever won a case in front of the United States Supreme Court. So I she did. was a first-class litigator uh, all those years ago. And I, I remember after the, after the disaster uh, of, the, of the retention election that she lost, uh, I, I remember the first time I was in a, a presentation that you made. I, I'm not sure where it was, but my jaw dropped. I thought, oh my God. She was a great litigator, she was a great judge, but this is what that woman is meant to do. I mean, if you get a chance to, oh, especially you. to the lawyers that are here, to ever get in on one of her workshops or presentations, you should take it because she's truly one of the most gifted teachers I've ever uh, been exposed she's to. She's still the uh, official evidence teacher to all the judges of Tennessee, including the Tennessee Supreme Court. <laughs> Well, to the other judges, judges on the panel, um, what do you do to find balance? We talked about ballroom dancing and, and other things, but what else, you know, attorney well-being is extremely important and um, well-being of our judges is important. What do you do when you're not on the bench and you are just wanting to either have fun or relax or just get balance in your life? Justice Lee, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, well, I think you have to be aware of the need for work-life balance, which is something I don't think as a young lawyer back in the day we ever thought about or knew about. So um, what do I do? Well, I have three grandchildren, and if you've got time, I'll be glad to show you about a 1,000 <laughs> pictures of them. I spend time with my grandchildren. Um, I, I try to walk every day. That's where I do a lot of thinking. Um, I read a lot. I read a lot of uh, historical fiction. and I've, I've always got two or three books going that I'm reading, different, different kinds of books. Uh, so when I in the summer I garden. I love to be out working in the dirt and making things grow. So that's sort of some of the things I do. But I, I think family probably is what um, in the early years having young children trying to practice law was. It sort of wrecked your work life balance. Uh, it made it very difficult. But when they get older, then you you sort of regain that and. Uh, the parents do all the hard work. The grandparent just has a whole lot of fun with the kids. <laughs> Thank you. Just Daughtry, what about you? Oh, well, um, I have a daughter who's an attorney. She's an assistant United States attorney here in Nashville. Uh, she's never married. But we, have been, we went to China twice to adopt uh, my granddaughters. And uh, it, it hasn't been all entirely smooth. And, you know, it, it does help to have two parents. And mm -hmm. so... My husband, who's been gone now for a couple of years, but when he was here, we were both co-parenting uh, with Carrie so that she could, uh, and she's, uh, she's somebody to be terribly proud of. She handles all the child exploitation cases mm -hmm. in the U.S. Attorney's Office. It's a terrible assignment from my point of view, uh, but she's, she's completely dedicated uh, to it. So. That's it, and then I work crossword puzzles, and I I read recipes. Uh, I, I do you don't, you don't cook them. You I don't do make the recipes. I read them. You just read them. I read them. 
recipes on the internet, cookbooks. I cook by instinct, but I read recipes. <laughs> wonderful. Justice Clark, how about you? For me, it's to be able to go back to my family. And there are many people who think I must not have a family because I am not married. I don't have children. But they don't know my sister and sister-in-law who are here tonight who, between them, had five boys. Uh, and during their childhoods, I went to whatever it is they did, Boy Scouts and piano recitals and every kind of sport that you can have and everything else. They're now in their 40s and 30s, but we have a whole new generation. There are 10 uh, grandchildren. Uh, and for me, they're, they're uh, great nieces and nephews. I just call them my greats. And they range in age from 21 to 2 uh, with another <laughs> on the way. But I can tell you that uh, if you entice them by having a swimming pool in your backyard, as I do, they will love <laughs> Auntie Connie. <laughs> and it's amazing what a 2-year-old or 10-year-old twins or teenagers who are thinking about going to college can do to enrich your life when they trust you and want to sit down and have a conversation. Um, and I also try to make time for friends. And I have to recognize Margaret Bim, who gives me time whenever I need it, because it's the only way to, at this point to get her back in the conversation. She is a woman who has helped make many judges as well. She supports women in whatever they want here, to do. Uh, we all owe her a lot as well. And I And they all keep me grounded. We call her the queen maker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Justice Kirby? Uh, I have, my children are grown now. Um, my daughter lives in Washington, D.C. I love to go visit her. And uh, my uh, wonderful husband and I love to go on hiking vacations. Went to, on a mother-daughter trip with my daughter to California recently. Went hiking. And uh, my husband is a fabulous cook. So... Uh, Judge Daughtry, I read recipes and give them to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I've made it to 15 of my three, 35 questions that I emailed you all beforehand, but I do want to say thank you on behalf of all of us, particularly those of us who've been practicing here in Tennessee and have admired you and watched you for so many years. It's a thrill for me to be here, and I admire all of you, and thank you so much for your service to our state. So please give them a, a round of applause for a wonderful discussion. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Tennessee Court Talk.